Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron, and with me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. This is part two of Emerging Trends in Canadian Real Estate um, with Frank Maliocco from PwC. So, Frank, we just finished kind of having a conversation about some more you know, interesting themes within the the full report. And I think in this part two of this episode, we're going to go and just kind of talk about some of the other tidbits that kind of came out and just kind of get your opinion on them. I'll start with the first one that's on the basically the first page. You know, this sort of emerging trends barometer, then you kind of got buy, sell, hold. You know, we've had sell, 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 and all of a sudden this year we're seeing a drop. And it's so, you know, with, with, a, with a kind of change with the buy. So do you, do you get a sense that people are now kind of adapting to this? The end of the cycle is not nigh, is not coming immediately. And maybe I got to change my approach to, to what I'm thinking about how long this cycle is going to last. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, a couple of interviewees said, you know, just stop asking me what inning we're in. You know, because I think every time, you know, if you're saying, you know, where, where are we in this cycle? Because this is one of the longest cycles that we've seen. But we have seen that change in sentiment. So when you think about individuals and, and the sentiment that you saw that played out there, it clearly sends a signal that people are much more cautious, that you know, they see you know, things are going to be choppy coming up, you know, be it the tariffs, trade issue, policies and regulations and all that. So they're being much more cautious. And I think it's reflected in how that barometer is shaping out. So it's that you know, cautious optimism, truly, you know, that Canadiana, I guess, um, you know, as opposed to uh, south of the border. Well, I'll, for our fact check episode we do in five years from now, I'll go on the, the, the line and say there is no cycle. This is, the, this is the, the endless cycle. We finally defeated it. It's now just yeah. endless good times. I, I, it, I'm telling you, we've had lots of conversations and joking aside with people and saying, you know, when is it happening? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's just interesting. It seems like every year people think, yeah, yeah, you know, this keeps going on. And, but this year is funny saying, just stop asking me. Like, <laughs> I have poor friends, and they're not poor in that sense, but unfortunate friends who have been waiting for the cycle to end to get into the real estate market. Shorted the market. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and now they're looking at it going, yeah, I screwed up. Yeah. It's been doubled while they were waiting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. On the theme of uh, sentiment, one of the other graphs, just a couple of pages down, is the real estate business prospects. There's two things I noted in there. One is that business prospects are down in every single category from 2020 as compared to 2019. But on the upside, the prospects for real estate lenders moved up a couple of spots. So I like that at a personal level, but for an industry as a whole, did you find a bit more of a negative sentiment? Is that reflected in the business prospects? Yeah. And I think, you know, we had that barometer in terms of profitability and what they what they thought the business is going to look like 12 months out. And it was all, you know, compared to the year before, it was down. So again, we just looked at this as directional because it's you know hard from a data point. Yeah, uh, trends are trends are the yeah, best way to all, kind of judge these things. Are just directional, and so to your point, Adam, it was you know much more you know trending down as opposed to to up, and so um, you know again, I think it's that caution that people in the marketplace have. They're concerned about all the geopolitical issues. So that you know when we're talking about it, that came up a lot more. And I have to say, one of the best lines by this very senior executive in a large institution said, you know, he's scared of, you know, legislation by Twitter. Because nowadays, you know, someone tweets something out and it caused, you know, a, just a, a kind of a momentum and it ultimately can lead to changes in regulations, which happened 
in the U.S. on the residential front with rent control, and all of a sudden, you know, the assets that they had there, you know, got impacted. So, you know, he said, you know, that kind of stuff is scary. And so, um, you know, I think well, it's all these geo- these issues that are in the back of mind of execs. On that same theme, more locally, we had the same issue. The Toronto Star did one article on a condo unit where the owner had doubled the rent, which is not reflective of the market doubling rent over the course of the year. And then uh, it was coming into an election cycle. So fast forward a couple of months later, and our, our government at the time here in Ontario enacted uh, some further rent control restrictions, just based on one article that popped up that uh, got shared widely in social media. You know, yeah. it was it was all over. I read it from ten different places. Yeah, and I think yeah. you, I mean, it, my sentiment, and I've heard this from other people, is that that occurrence of sort of legislation by Twitter, you know, one of the biggest threats to our industry was sort of like a vacancy decontrol or vacancy control where all of a sudden you can't rise rents when you've got that vacancy and that the it sounds nice and I can see government I can see sort of legislators saying yeah well that would be great and that'll make my constituents happen anybody that rents will really appreciate that but I have no idea the the trickle down negative impacts that actually has on affordability at large and I, I worry that that's that's one of those things that one tweet could just pick up so much momentum and the next thing you know we've got this this vacancy control legislation that's just going to Again, just shut down the entire market. We're talking about needing fifty thousand units a year to keep up with demand, and yet you do that, which sounds great. I think you know if I'm a, if I'm a legislator, and I think my constituents would think that's great, but that would just just kill all supply in this market. Next topic. Well, well, no. Before, sorry, I kind of got like, my tangent. I tirade there. Um, <laughs> I don't want to stop it. There yeah, no. Let me. Flow. No, my, I lost my train of thought. The real estate lenders. It concerns me that we're number three as far as the most optimistic group in the real estate industry. By nature, we're conservative, and everybody that that deals with lenders and has to borrow money from us, like lenders at general, not just First National. We ha- we are we take a conservative approach to to valuations and you know what we th- what we see in the marketplace. And the fact that we're number three out of sort of these eight or nine different segments concerns me. It'd be almost like there's flood of capital that might be coming out unnecessarily and you know kind of you know increasing the price of rents in- increasing the price of, of land there can be some negative impacts if lenders get a little bit too happy about throwing money around you know still come to first national but um, but, <laughs> but that, that party's that, ended badly before yeah well that's yeah. that's my point right it, it was it was quite frankly it was lenders just getting too free with the cash and throwing money around and start doing sort of unnecessarily high leverage loans that that really was the cause of the 2008 crash in the first place yeah and I think I think one of the differences, I, I, at least that I found, is that they're much more disciplined right now compared sure, to fair. in the past, much more disciplined. But that is a reality. There is a ton of capital, notwithstanding it's saying that you know there's a lot more equilibrium. But when you look around, you know the number of funds that are out there, private funds that have money chasing, which is uh, which is really important. Well, on that exact theme, when you're talking about capital in the market, there's a, a couple of charts to cover equity capital for investing, debt capital for acquisitions, debt capital for refinancing, and debt capital for development. And it parses it into undersupplied, imbalanced, oversupplied. And every single category, it's shifted from oversupplied, meaning you know previous years, to imbalanced now. And I know that an abundance of capital has been a topic of conversation for you know well years at this point. Are we maybe seeing a deceleration of that in 2020? Well, I think that's what our interviewees are telling us, and I think it's probably because you know. And again, you know, what I'm trying to read the tea leaves here is that you know the the, the real estate markets are where they are right now, and so people are looking elsewhere potentially to put their capital. You know, interest rates are at an all time low. All the stuff that's going on right now, we don't see them moving because of all the uncertainty. So maybe people are looking, saying, "I could, you know, need to put some capital elsewhere." 
you know, there's still lots of capital. Let's not, let's forget about that. But I think you know it's much more balanced from what we're hearing the interviewees tell us right now. Yeah, a shift to imbalance does not sound like the sky is falling. Let me, right. Yeah, if, right. if, if, if right. you see the graph, everybody, and we'll, I guess we'll put a link to the download on the pages as well. It is worth reading. You'll see it. You'll see it there. So don't get scared that your next project's going to have no funds available <laughs> for an equity or a debt side. You know, but it, but it is what we did hear though, loud and clear is. When they were looking for the capital, you had to be an established client. You had to be of good quality. So it still was tough to get the capital that you yeah. needed to do projects unless you were established in the marketplace. So Yeah, former guest Jeremy Wedgbury, who was part of our Lenders Roundtable episode a couple of months ago, he'd like, you to, he'd like to hear that because that is the way that we run our business at First National. The best borrowers get the best financing. Right. Let's jump. One of my favorite favorite charts on as part of this report is the sort of ranking of the sentiment of, of investment opportunities for asset classes. And, and it was this report that I got introduced to the concept of fulfillment centers. I think back when you know the e-commerce world was still kind of taking taking hold within real estate. Do you have any any comments about kind of what this has resulted? It's probably no surprise. Top three warehouses fulfillment and a flex Asset class, which are, all, talk, all industrial, which are all industrial. Which Do you want to talk about what the definition of flex is? Because I think that's new to this to this list. It is, but I want to come back. I think this all, you know, to borrow a, a quote from inside the report, it's all about beds and sheds. So from a prospects. So when you think about where are the best markets, it's about sheds, the industrial sector, fulfillment centers, and beds being the rental apartment market. So that's where. You know, this is you know loud and clear, and it's come out loud and clear at least from. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. The next three after those three industrial would be senior housing, moderate income housing, and high income apartments. Exactly. Or, so, or you're calling them workforce apartments. Yeah. So beds and sheds. That's, yeah, that, that's, that's all what, you got to say. That's all <laughs> okay. we got to say. That's all. That, that so, is, but that doesn't necessarily mean stick away, stay away from everything else. No, it doesn't. It just you know again, our interviewees are just telling us that's where they see the greatest opportunity. You think about all the other asset classes, including you know you got office, which is still strong. And, you know, and even retail, while a lot of people are trying to kind of stay away from it, there's still pockets of retail that is really good retail. You know, there's, you know, I don't think it's the end of the bricks and mortar store. I think there's still going to be around. And notwithstanding the fact that e-commerce continues to grow in popularity and use and penetration into the marketplace, there is a place for good experiential retail out there. That being said, power centers is the bottom. That, the bottom yeah, 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 exactly. But that's maybe not experiential. Yeah, <laughs> but I, and I, I can't remember who said it, but I, maybe it was a panel I was I was listening to, but they're talking about how, you know, out of all retail purchases, e-commerce is still less than 10%. Like it, it was 10%. Yeah, yeah. So it's, not ta- it's not taking over the marketplace, right? 90% of retail purchases still occur, you know, at stores. Right? Absolutely. We talked about that last year. And so when you take a look at the size of it, 90% is happening. But what's happening is it's changing. So, you know, maybe the guy doesn't need, you know, the 10,000 or 15,000 square foot mega store and only needs a 3,000 storefront. You know, I just look at it on a personal level. You know, you know, my wife never used to shop using online, whereas now she buys everything. She'll go to the store to look at the stuff and say, oh, this is nice, but ends up, you know, going, you know they may not have the size or, or you know, the quality there, you know, because it's just the stuff on the hanger, and she'll go home and just order it online. So you, I think you still need that storefront. I think that having those that omni-channel is is going to be continue to be important. It's just the customer experience is different. The customer experience, Both, is whether different. it's the retail tenant or the actual right. the actual uh, retailer. An interesting point on that on that same list. We talked about the top three investment prospects being industrial, industrial, and industrial. But sheds. Uh, <laughs> shed, shed, shed. But on the development prospects. The first two fulfillment and warehouse to you know to match the investment prospects, 
but developing seniors housing made the top three. Obviously, and we talked about this podcast before, the coming wave of boomers needing significant assistance is, is on the horizon. Is that uh, being driven just by that, or is there other factors? I don't know this would appear on this uh, yeah. list this high other years. Exactly. I think it's all demographics. You're absolutely right. It's interesting. So I've got my own personal thoughts on this as well, but it was interesting to see that you know it came up that high on the list. Totally understandable, because when you look at you know the demographics, the amount of you know aging the society that we have here in Canada, that's going to be a massive market. But when I look at what's happening right now in terms of construction, it's not, you know, it pales in comparison to what's going on in the other segments. So it'll be really interesting to see how this kind of plays out in the near future. But without a doubt, when we talk to people and when we, you know, the results of our survey clearly indicate that that is an important segment that's going to kind of uh, get even better in the future. So kind of be looking at that one closely. That one always scares me. Think well, we're, we're doing real estate trends, so let's project even further. Twenty twenty, let's go like twenty fifty. You know what what happens to all of those senior houses? Because there isn't another demographic of the same scope and size that comes through. And are these things being built with that thought in mind? Going to be reimagined. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but th- that's the reality. It's like, it's like look at the look at the school systems. You've got all these dilapidated schools now because back. 30, 40 years ago, they were building schools like crazy to adapt to the, yeah. the, the boom, right? And I think it comes back to that reimagining. That's that one of those themes, reimagining real estate. So you got these schools, okay, so what can we do with them? You know, they're good residential sites. You've got, you know, you look at some of the industrial here in the city. You know, I'm not sure if you've ever done a flyover. Like it's Unfortunately not, but I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's quite interesting. And you think about when you when you look at it, you're saying like in this city, this is like, you know, Prime residential stuff, and you see these old, dilapidated. I live in. Buildings. I live in. I live in South Etobicoke, where I'm surrounded by fourteen foot clear. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, the, actually, happily, I can I can say that the uh, the Campbell's Soup Factory that used to throw like just sort of pungent soup smells into my neighborhood <laughs> has been recently purchased by Quadrille and has been shut down. And so I'm. I'm Fingers crossed that turns into a really nice a residential pig, development. A pig rendering facility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. So we're gonna see. I think, you know, to your point, I think, you know, coming back, there's gonna be a lot of this reimagining real estate as we go through these different cycles. And yeah, yeah I mean the 20 year version of this, maybe seniors housing is back at the bottom all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe malls will move back up. Yeah. And just we I mean we kind of I guess we bashed retail a little bit there, but uh high street. Urban retail did make the top seven list for development, so there is some positive highlights, as you alluded to, that it is segmented amongst. Yeah, different retail. I, I think there's some really good retail that's out there, and I think you know that's the message that we heard. It has been bashed for real, but I think you know good retail, high street, experiential malls. You know, those are, are still solid uh, in the eyes of the interviewees that we talked to. So this is part two of our episodes with Frank. Part one, we you talked about PwC opening up a, an urban office. However, I'm looking, or sorry, a suburban office, and I'm looking down here. That's almost the very bottom. Any any thoughts? Because in my mind, I almost see I see that as a stronger asset class. If you've got terrible transportation, it takes an hour and a half to drive in. Building suburban office and having short commutes for your employees may be attractive. Any comments? That's a great observation there. But what probably I didn't tell you is that it actually sits right on the subway. <laughs> oh, okay. Never mind. Where, so, so where is it? Where so it's is at Jane and Highway Seven. Oh, so okay. it's literally at the end of the subway. You know, it, you basically walk into the subway, and I think that's you know when we were thinking that through. Was that was an important part because you're right. 
you know, you want livability, you want walkability, and you want to be able to go into downtown very quickly. And so this, you know, people will be able to walk down the office into the subway and be downtown in 45 minutes. And I'm not sure if you visited that place. You got to see what's happening there right now. The amount of residential and retail that's going up is it's, uh, it, and is a result of the the subway extension. Yeah, and I think if you you know you mentioned Quadreal, so they had just purchased. They have a big track of land just south of that on the other side of Highway Seven. And you know my understanding again, I don't have it on official, but what I hear is that. They, that whole track of land, there's going to be like 10,000 residents that'll be going there. So it's like a master plan community with schools, residential, retail. Uh, so, so you're getting, you guys are just getting ahead of the trend. We're just ahead of the trend. Well, you know, I'll be honest. If I'm a if I'm a millennial living downtown Toronto and my office is up, you were not long ago. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I would. Oh, maybe I guess I'm a millennial. But if I'm living downtown Toronto on the subway, jumping on the train and going north against the grain, sitting on a nice empty train going all the way up there, wouldn't be wouldn't be a bad way to get to work. Now, if the TTC and our transit can solve Wi-Fi on the whole system and come into the 21st century, like that would be yeah. awesome. That's fair. That, that, they play a lot of offline games all the way up, right? <laughs> in our goal to get uh, you know more granular in our in our second episode here, the report does contain uh, city by city forecasting for you know a number of the, the large city across Canada. So it, it might be useful to kind of jump through the ones listed here, and people can tune out for cities they don't care about and pay close attention for the places they hold assets. The first one on the list is Vancouver. I'm a little insulted that Toronto, the center of the universe, is not the first one listed, but uh, Vancouver is also a very nice city. But the, the, the headline on the Vancouver breakdown is economic growth in Vancouver is moderating. I know that we're hearing that anecdotally as lenders. We're hearing land prices are coming off. We're hearing that sales velocity in condos have slowed down. But what was your big takeaway about Vancouver for 2020? I think the biggest takeaway for Vancouver is notwithstanding all those, it's still a great place to be a great place to to have a business and a great place to live. So, you know, everything that we've seen in terms of our interviewee responses has put, you know, Vancouver at the top end of that. Again, I, I think it's uh, it's interesting, you know, when you think about it and compare it to and contrast it to, to Toronto, you know, where Toronto has a such, uh, you know, center, economic center here. Vancouver, though, still shined in terms of uh, real estate and from an investment perspective. So, you know, there wasn't anything that we could actually put our hands around to say that's the reason why Vancouver ended up as number one. But clearly, you know, people see that as, you know, pricing, notwithstanding it's moderating, it's ultimately when time to move up, it's going to move up faster. And it's just a a great place to live, I think, is uh, where what kind of was the end result of those conversations we had. I'm out there about once a month and I, I feel that every time I get on the plane to come back. It, it is a very magical city within uh, within Canada. Yeah, I think it's, it is more livable than Toronto, I believe, by a number of different metrics, whether you believe them or not. One of the interesting things about Vancouver right now is there is this sort of pause in the marketplace as they kind of recheck to see where land prices should be and what condo price sales should be. There seems to be a change in the air there. I don't think there's a, it's anything significant, but it's, you know, there's not nearly as much, I think, capital coming from overseas as there has been in the past. It doesn't seem yeah. as chaotic. You know, if there was probably just too much growth in all asset classes and all sectors. And so I think everybody's kind of like, okay, okay, let's take some deep breaths and kind of see where the, see where everything kind of falls. So there's this kind of interesting vibe in Vancouver right now where everybody, everyone's comfortable. Like the, the overall supply and demand forces are all healthy, right. but there's kind of a pause in the marketplace. It's interesting. 
Toronto. There you go, yeah, Adam. So Toronto, for, number two, not for, far yeah. behind. For everybody that didn't uh, turn off the podcast after I made my center of the universe comment, I was just joking, of course. <laughs> but we will talk about uh, we'll talk about Toronto. The uh, there's a stubbornness of Toronto. Yeah, I there's, think there's a quote there's, that's was, talking was that from about an you. interviewee that uh, you put that in there. It says there's a certain stubbornness that has persisted in the GTA real estate market. Is that a quote from one of the interviews? It is. It is. So can we, can we elaborate on that? I think I, I think I know what it means, but uh, maybe you, you know better than I would. We're there. Well, you know, I, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, the, the, despite the despite the reasons that you might see a slowdown in this market, you're not going to see it. The net migration factors are still there. All the predictions of, you know, the biggest example being uh, our housing was going to have issues. We didn't have issues. Condo sales were going to slow down. None of that happened. It just continues to yeah. year after year. Yeah, Persist. it just keeps trudging along. Now we did see, if you if you recall, we did see things tail off. You know, pricing coming off. I go back though that you know to our earlier conversation in the first podcast. If you got one hundred and fifteen thousand people coming in here, and our occupancy rate in the rental market is only like our vacancy rate is like two three percent. You know, there's going to be you know prices are going to continue. Oh yeah, to rise. I think like so, CMC numbers are like zero point seven percent vacancy now for yeah. most markets in sort of the center of Toronto. Yeah, like the, the, but, yeah but depending I'm, on where they're including, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, no, movement, but, but it's unhealthily tight, right? I guess is the is the comment. Right. So Toronto, if if you believe that, it's you're back to that supply demand, right? Your basic economics one hundred and one course, and you've got that built in demand because of the people coming in. Supply you can't keep up with. Those prices are always going to be buoyant. Yes, they'll come off a little. Yes, there's people a little bit of caution, but unless that drastically changes, and if everything I learned in economics 100 is fake, <laughs> yeah, you know, I know that you know pricing's going to hold. And you know, you take a look at every segment in here. Office is strong. We put in a ton of new construction. Still hasn't had any impact. You look at the amount of on the net effect of rents on industrial in this area. Also going up, so all those things are all positive signs in this market. Which, when you think about it, it's you know I, I had a conversation with one very astute real estate executive who said it's all about being at Center Ice, and for him and his organization, it's you know MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and that is the place I want to be if something bad happens. Because if something has to recover, those are the cities and markets that are recover first. Yeah, I think I. We've talked about it so much that the the affordability problem is getting worse, right? We, I remember when when rents got to three dollars per square foot, and people are saying, "Oh, wow, how how could we ever sustain that? And who's going to be able to afford three dollars?" And we're going to be soon saying, "Wow, six dollars a square foot! Like, who's going to be able to afford that?" Underwriting a luxury building at that. Uh, yeah, right. It's now, it's yeah. it's pretty insane, and it's going to keep going. And I, I don't see I don't see a resolution coming quickly. Anyway, I mean, I think there are. At least now it feels like there's more discussion about it going on with the people that can make the changes, the legislation. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it takes years for those guys to make decisions. So, but the developers, you know, you know, they, they have an investment thesis, but then they back it up with hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you know, I through my work with First National, I speak with a lot of developers here, and they all fall back to this to exactly what you said, which is the net migration is going to drive this upwards and upwards and upwards and upwards. And and then they back it up by making decisions involving hundreds of millions of dollars. It's absolutely it's a very compelling case. Third on the list, Ottawa tied, quite frankly, with Halifax, which I found it surprising. I, I always thought Halifax was lower on this list. Do you, do you have any comment about you know what we're seeing in the Halifax market? We'll get to Ottawa next. I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Uh, it got some really interesting uh, responses this year from the, from that market. Again, if you're, it depends on where you're, where you're playing. If you're the institutional player, you're Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, 
stop, right? Maybe Ottawa, but really it's Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver is where you're focused. Some of the other opportunistic players are looking at what I deem as being, you know, the new and emerging 18-hour cities like an Ottawa. It was great to see Halifax in there. I've been to Halifax lots of times. I quite enjoy it. It's a great place. There's stuff happening there. But it you know, relies a lot on certain industries. And you know, there's been tons of talk about the whole shipbuilding and all that kind of stuff that was supposed to be happening there. And I'm not sure that much has, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so it'll be interesting to see how that's going to play out. Notwithstanding that, our interviewees you know, put that at number four and felt very comfortable with that market and investing in that market. Well, it's interesting. So if you let's group these together. Ottawa, Halifax, Saskatoon, and Quebec City, who are the sort of the top four that aren't MTV, and then just the rounding out the final ten are Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Calgary. But you know, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Calgary sort of fairly further below the other three. I think it was the first podcast we were talking about these eighteen-hour cities and the migration you're seeing because of the unaffordability of sort of the major markets. And do you think that might have an impact that those markets are going to continue to be strong simply because there are going to be you know people saying, "Look, I'm making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, but I can't afford a house. So why don't I move to Halifax and and actually you know improve my quality of living exponentially?" Eric, I think that's exactly it, and and that's what we're seeing, you know, south of the border. And I kind of look and I keep referring to the south of the border because I find that usually what happens south of the border usually trickles over to north of the yeah, border. Yeah, and, for, and for, for context, the first 25 pages of this report are Canada, and then the remaining 75 pages are, are U.S. So exactly. if you're interested in what's going on in the U.S., there's some really interesting uh, material part, part here. three, four, and five, and six of this podcast will be uh, <laughs> in the U.S. Yeah. So I think that's exactly what's happening. And, and so we're starting to see, if you take a look at, you know, surprisingly, let's just take the GTA, you know, and even beyond here in Ontario, Kitchener-Waterloo, Niagara, Hamilton, all these centers are starting to flourish, believe it or not, in terms of residential, in terms of new businesses going in there and stuff like that. Why, again, I think it's all a function of what you just said. It's affordability. People can't want a place to live, can't afford to be in in the big smoke here in Toronto. And so they got to find us, they got to drive till they find a place that they can afford. And do you think the jobs are following them? And that, I guess that's the variable, the unknown yeah, variable. That's the unknown variable. I think we'll go look at the highways at eight in the morning. Yeah, and, uh, it would seem it's, to not. It's, and that's the part that kind of I struggle with. You know, so I'm a commuter as well. I come in from Vaughan. You know, I've come in from Vaughan for the last 30 years and I've seen, you know, my commute time, you know, more than double. I don't know how, you know, you can stay sane doing that over and over again. So transit has got to improve. And I think if people had a choice, you know, between jobs, they clearly would select something near where they're working as opposed to downtown, right? If they have to do a, an hour and a half commute each day. So, to answer your question, I think there will be jobs that will be moving there, not unlike what we're seeing south of the border, where people are moving to the likes of an Austin or a rally or whatever, and jobs are following there. Employers are following there because they need the talent. And if the talent can't afford the big city, you know, they're, they're reaching out. You know, just to circle back to to the, the group that I'd put together: Ottawa, Halifax, Quebec City, and Saskatoon. They've been to all four relatively recently, and they all kind of have some charm to them. I mean, Quebec City's got a really kind of mm-hmm. interesting old downtown. Saskatoon's got a, got a beautiful kind of river running through, it, and there's some development, there's some activity there, there's nice some nightlife. Actually, yeah. yeah, right. You know, Ottawa, of course, you know, being the capital, there's a ton of stuff going on in Ottawa, so you can see the attraction, right? If you think about it, okay, well, screw this. I I just can't I can't have another child because I can't afford a third bedroom, so. 
I'm going somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? And there, there are some cities out there that are attractive. And, you know, not to be insulting to Calgary and Edmonton, but of course, it's no secret there's been challenges in their economy. And I think that's the reason that you're seeing the sentiment in your surveys. What other things did you kind of get out of, out of the, the, from the responses that you had? So, you know, clearly you're right. The sentiment is quite negative there. And I think people are still see that market as very challenged. You know, I think six months ago when we talked, you know, people would have said, you know, we're at the bottom, just bouncing around the bottom, but they saw some potential for this upswing. That six, you know, months have come and gone and we really haven't seen much happen. And so that's, you know, quite concerning. You know, they're they're a gas and oil town, right? So until we get some clarity of what's happening in that market space, I think it's going to continue to struggle. You know, talking to the residential developers out there, it's a real challenge for them. You talk to office owners, that's you know a challenge. You talk to the hotel, like it's it's a it's a challenging market from a real estate front. And you know, clearly, it's you know. Let's just put it this way. The end is not in the in near sight from the people that we spoke to. So again, if things happen from an from an economic perspective in that part of Canada, then you know I think it's primed to kind of you know get back up on its feet, but I think it's uh, still down on its knees right now. Industrial is a bit of a brighter spot than the rest of the asset classes, isn't it? It is. It's interesting. So uh, having said all of that, the one area that did have a little shine on it was just the industrial. But that again is a function of the broad strength of that segment industrial right across Canada. You know, net effective rents, as you know, have you know started to climb. They hadn't for the last five years. They've been flat. And now all of a sudden they're all climbing. So so all of that is again. What was positive. the what was the the stat that we had someone on say about you know because it's it's exactly the same distance in either direction. I think to Winnipeg or to Vancouver for the length of time drivers can drive trucks. So it's it's kind of there is this kind of it's right in the perfect spot for mm-hmm. Trans Canada commutes. And so the industrial market is just going to be strong because of that. Yeah, as long as the country's strong, they'll be strong. Kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember that, but that's actually interesting. Expected best bets in 2020. So why don't we let you do this, Frank? What kind of what were the things that you kind of will will check back on these in a year from now? So we, we talked we, about the see sh- sheds and beds, and yeah, then uh, bed, call it a day. Is that now, well, beds and sheds. That's all we heard. It's about um, the warehousing and fulfillment. Again, that's on the back of retail, right? The e-commerce phenomenon that's really driving that. You know, and talking to developers, you know, they're clearly seeing a lot of opportunity to build new stuff and they're getting the rents and the occupancies are, are strong. And so, you know, I think that's just going to continue. You know, the bed side is, I think, on the back of the whole affordability issue. People can't afford homes. They got to rent. You've heard lots of developments just here and, you know, we're here in the GTA, but you heard lots of developments here in the GTA being announced about new rentals coming to market. I think Oxford announced uh, they want to put up, you know, 800 units right here down by the, uh, over the tracks. You heard, I think it's Tricon and Dream that are doing something in the West, uh, West Donlands. So, you know, that whole market on the back of affordability is, is really strong. I think it, it is worth pointing out as well and expected best bets. It specifically highlights mid-priced apartments as the, as the best bet. Because if we went back to one of the previous graphs, uh, you would see that uh, high-end luxury apartments you know, ranked in the middle of the pack, whereas the right. mid-priced apartments, uh, you know, affordability. Yeah, exactly. And then when we look at some of the other areas that we see is you know, the transit-oriented development. You know, clearly, no shocker there that that would be a best bet. You build good transit, 
you know, just have to take a look at what's happening in some of the areas in Montreal, right? Because they've got that big, huge approval of the transit that they've done there and the amount of real estate development that's happening there, what's happening in Vaughan at the end of, uh, of the subway, a lot of development going on there. All these nodes where they've added good transit, we're seeing a lot of development. And I think Metrolinx is doing a good job of that in terms of trying to, when I say good job, you know, they, they are recognizing that, you know, there are good real estate plays. They got underutilized assets in the land that they hold. And so here's a great opportunity to improve transit and then improve good real estate around there. So I think that's a that's another big bet. And then we talked earlier about seniors housing. Those kind of lined up the top four in terms of our best bets. And, you know, senior housing is on the, on the back of uh, the demographic shifts that we're seeing and that we're going to be entering into. All right, line up your dollars. These are the best bets for, for 2020. <laughs> well, thanks, Frank. I think this has, been, this has been great as always. I love this episode and recording with you because it's so insightful and there's so much material. It's all this sort of juicy topic. So I really enjoy having you on. Thanks for coming on. Well, it's a lot of fun. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.